Genesis chapter 16. And I believe that what God wants to offer us today is not a condemnation for the world, but comfort um, in what we read today. So Genesis 16, we're going to read the whole chapter beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that in your word, we can not only see the things that have taken place in the past. We can not only look at current events or historical events and and, and make sense of how it fits with what you are doing in redemptive history, but we can look to your word and see you. God, we can look to your word and see what you desire to say about yourself to us, about our condition, our sinful human condition, and what you have to say to us about how we can be saved, how we can be known, how we can be delivered, how we can be transformed, how we can be be put on a, a, a train to glory, Lord. We look to your word and believe that it's true and look to your word and believe that through it you speak to us. And so, God, would you speak to our hearts today? God, for those who are wounded, for those who are hurting, Lord, for those who feel small, who feel insignificant today, who feel overlooked, unloved, 
who feel like they're without hope, without help. God, we pray that you would speak a word of comfort to your people today, that they would know that their redeemer lives, that we would know that Jesus lives, that he is alive and find life in him. And so God, we believe your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would cause it to sink deep down into our hearts, that you would cause it to change us and that you would empower us to obey your word. God, to follow Christ in your word and in our lives. And so Lord, we give you glory today. We give you praise. We give you thanks. And expect the good things that you desire to do in us and in our midst. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the desire for significance, the desire to to make sure that your life matters, the, the urge that we have to know that our lives count for something more than just the oxygen we breathe and the resources we consume is a natural human experience. We all want to know that we're either making the world better than, than, than it was when we found it. We all want to know that the, the people around us are, are better for having known us. We all want to make our mark. We want to know that who we are, that something we do counts for something, that it's significant. And when our significance is threatened, when we feel like we are being made to be small or, or rejected or cast out, disregarded, when our significance is threatened, it can cause us to pursue significance in misguided ways. Some of the most iconic villains in the history of film and literature have a common thread of seeking significance the wrong ways. Consider the Phantom of the Opera. Born with a a physical deformity, rejected and despised by society. The original novel says that, that even his own mother would not kiss him as a baby. And so growing up under the the scorn and rejection of society sought uh, his life turned to a life of obsession and, and, uh, uh, and violence and just trying to earn the love and the, the acceptance that he longed for his whole life. Or maybe you're more familiar with the Joker. The Joker's origin story has been told a variety of different ways over the decades in film and television and and comic books. But one common thread is that the Joker felt like he was a nobody trying to become somebody. And when rejected by society, turned to a life of crime and lost his mind and became one of the greatest villains of all time. All trying to, to, to become something significant, trying to be noticed. And our text speaks to this question of significance. Do I matter? Does my life count for something? Does anyone notice me? Would anyone care if I was gone? This text speaks to that. What we see in God's word is what our hearts need to receive today, that no matter who you are, from the greatest to the smallest of us, that God cares for you. 
We all need to know today that God cares for us. See, Sarai is an example of what it looks like to strive to secure our own significance. Sarai is trying to strive. She's striving for her own significance. She's barren. She doesn't have any children. It's been 10 years since God promised Abram that his heir would come from his own body. It's been 10 years. And Sarai still has not had any children. And in the ancient world, a barren woman, there was a stigma, a social stigma for a woman who couldn't have children. See, in the ancient world, they didn't know about uh, the fertilization of an egg. Okay, they believed that the man planted the seed and the woman was just an incubator. And if the man planted the seed and no baby came from that, it was obviously the woman's fault. We know today that that's not true, but in the ancient world, that's how they understood it. And so a barren woman, a woman that could not produce children or had not produced children was seen by the world as not being able to fulfill her most basic wifely responsibilities, produce children. And for that reason, many times men divorced their wives who were barren because of the significance of providing an heir. And so there was a stigma. There was a, a, a belief that since God controlled fertility, that God had rejected you. And so Sarai is trying to provide for herself a, a child and an heir. And outside of the stigma, um, a widowed wife, Abram and Sarai are getting very old in, in, this, in this story. And, and you know, I don't not quite sure Sarai's biological clock is still ticking. And the older they get, the closer Sarai gets to potentially being widowed. And a widowed wife did not have the right to inherit her, her husband's property. Only a child could inherit the husband's property. So without a child, if something were to happen to Abram, there's no guarantee that Sarai would be taken care of. And so Sarai is looking for a way to, to remove her own reproach. And so she, she schemes up a plan that seems incredibly foolish to us. But it wouldn't have been so out of the question in the ancient world. There are ancient marriage contracts. A marriage contract in the ancient world was made between uh, two fathers, the father of the groom and the father of the bride. And so there are ancient marriage contracts that we have discovered uh, that have the father of the bride writing a stipulation into the contract that if his daughter turned out to be barren, was not able to provide a child, the husband was not allowed to divorce her, but instead she should go and find a surrogate from among the servants and have a child through her. And then after the child is born and weaned, they were to send the servant away. Basically hijack the baby. This was something that happened in the ancient world. And so Sarai is operating within the, the, the conventional wisdom of the ancient world. I don't have a baby. My, my husband doesn't have an heir. Uh, if, if we don't do something, we're in trouble. And so she takes matters into her own hands and she comes up with a plan. Look, I've got this servant, Abram. It could be that God wants to provide an heir. God wants to provide a child 
through her. Now it's subtle to us, but in the context of Hebrew storytelling, this text absolutely condemns what Sarai is doing. Even though it might have been a part of conventional wisdom, the way the text tells this story makes it clear how God feels about this. See, there's a pattern that the biblical authors use when trying to show that somebody's actions are sin. Not every time, but some of the time. It's been a while since we've been in Genesis chapter three, but if you remember Genesis chapter three, after the serpent had convinced Eve to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, even though God had forbid her not to, it says that she saw the fruit, that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eye, and that it was desirable to make one wise. She saw the fruit, she takes the fruit, she eats the fruit, and then she gives some to her husband. She saw, she took, she gave. Genesis chapter six, when the sons of God do their, uh, uh, commit their, their rebellion, their transgression, they saw that the daughters of men were literally good, beautiful, and took for themselves, as many as they desired. Um, King David with Bathsheba, he saw Bathsheba, that she was good, took her for himself. And so here, Sarai sees Hagar. Behold, look, Sarai has a servant. And she took her servant and gave her to her husband. Sarai is a new Eve. This is a new fall. Abram and Sarai are a new Adam and Eve, a new new uh, seed of God's promised people. God had just made a covenant with Abram. This is the next scene. Just like Adam and Eve, after they've been placed in the garden and given everything, they immediately turn away from God and rebel. And so uh, Abram and Sarai are this new Seed of God's people, this new kind of humanity because of the covenant that they make with God. And here we see the same old transgression, choosing not to believe God's promise, taking matters into their own hands and acting in disbelief and acting out of a lack of faith. And so when all of this blows up in their face, just like Adam and Eve, who pointed the finger at one another and told God, this woman you gave me, she's the one that ate the fruit. And then the serpent, the the woman is like the serpent God that you made. He's the one that, that got me to do this. Just like them. Sarai goes to Abram and says, let the wrong done to me be on you. She blames Abram. It was her idea. She blames Abram. And then Abram goes, wow, she's your servant. Do with her as you please. Why are you looking at me? Just completely, you know, denies the fact that she's now the mother of his child. The text actually says that she became Abram's wife. And he goes, well, do with her whatever you want. And so Sarai starts abusing her. The, the, the word that's used has implications for psychological and physical abuse. Sarai is a villain. Her pursuit of significance has and, 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 a, and a future has, has made her a villain to Hagar. And, and 
Abram's just standing there, minding his own business, pretending like he's got no part to play in the matter. And so Hagar conceives a child. And Sarai believed that if she could, uh, if she conceived a child, that that child would somehow be an heir for her. And lo and behold, she wakes up from her fantasy and realizes that she's just now provided an heir, Abram's only heir to another woman. And so now she's created a rival to the promise. She's created an obstacle to her sharing in Abram's blessing. She's actually made it more difficult on herself and actually caused her significance to become less in Abram's eyes because now he's got a child with this other woman. And so it all blows up in her face. Her future seems even less secure. And so she, she takes it out on Hagar, mistreats her. So the text turns now from the villain in the story to the victim of the story. Hagar is an example of those who have no significance by worldly standards. Where Sarai is an example of striving to secure her own significance. Hagar is an example of those in the world who seem to have no significance by worldly standards. She's pregnant, alone, and in the middle of the desert. She's probably on her way back to Egypt. This place where, where she's found is, is called Shur. It's in between Canaan and the land of Egypt. She's probably on her way back to her homeland, but she's got no resources. And even if she gets back to Egypt, there's no guarantee that life will be any better for her there. She's pregnant, which means she's no longer marriageable. She's no longer a virgin. She won't be able to be married off and, and, and have a future provided for her. And maybe they might assume that her pregnancy is from something scandalous and she should be killed. In that world, that's what would have happened. And so she is in the wilderness without hope, without anyone to help. She's actually very much like Sarai at the beginning of the story. See, both of them in the story are only regarded as valuable as what they can provide. Sarah looked at herself and saw that she was insignificant. She needed to pursue significance somehow because she was not able to provide what she needed to provide for Abram. And she also looks at Hagar and only sees her through the lens of what Hagar can provide. Maybe she can provide an heir for me. And treats her like an object. Both of them are viewed only through the lens of what they can provide. Chances are, from time to time, you know what it feels like to be treated only on the basis of what you can provide and what you can do. It's been said that we often treat ourselves and others as though we are human doings rather than human beings. We look at what we do for God. We look at what we do for one another. We look at what we do for ourselves. And if it seems insignificant to us, we're tempted to believe that we lack significance. And you might even have friends or family that relate to you in that way. Maybe you have people that only come to you when they need something. It feels like your only value to them is what you can provide. 
Maybe you feel like your relationships with people are, are uh, they treat you um, along the lines of, well, what, have, what have you done for me lately? Parents often feel this way. Their kids look to them only as what they can provide. And as they get older, when they don't need as much provision from their parents, the relationship is strained. Maybe you know what it's like to feel insignificant, to feel like you are only as good as what you can do. And what Hagar experiences in our text is actually what Sarai needed the whole time. What Hagar experiences in our text at this point in the story is what you and I need time after time. See, Hagar experiences the loving pursuit of God. It says that the angel of the Lord found her, finds Hagar in the wilderness, and the whole experience is summarized by Hagar's expression in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. This is such a beautiful picture of God. She calls him El Roy, the God who sees. This is who God is. He's he's aware. He sees her. You know, the phrase... God is watching you is often used to warn people of their behavior. Youth kids in the back, God's watching you. Shape up or ship out. Right? You're, you were a kid and you were leaving to go hang out with friends or whatever. My dad always used to say, hey, be good, behave, be careful. Some parents said, hey, God's watching you. God knows what you're doing. That phrase, God is watching you, is often used to to warn us regarding our behavior. But in scripture, the watchful eye of God is not a warning when you're misbehaving. It's comfort when you're invisible. When no one else sees, when no one else is looking, when no one else is aware of what's going on, not only in your life, but in your mind and your heart, God sees. He's aware. One of my favorite passages in scripture is in Exodus when the Israelites are suffering under the the taskmasters of Egypt. And there's this passage that just says, and God saw and God knew. When you're going through life and you're experiencing tragedy, difficulty, pain, suffering, confusion, whatever it is, God sees and God knows. He sees and he knows. When you feel insignificant and small, God sees you. You don't have to make yourself into something impressive for God to pay attention to you. You don't have to get his attention for him to be like, fine, what? He sees and he knows God sees you. God sees you because he cares for you. Hagar hadn't done anything to deserve this divine visitation. She just ran away from 
her master and she's in the middle of the wilderness. But God is the one who pursues her. He pursues the vulnerable. He pursues the outcast, the unwanted and the unloved. God pursues those of us who have no pursuer. He pursues her. And when the angel of the Lord tells her of the child she's going to bear, he names the child Ishmael, for the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. God sees her. He's the God who sees El Roy. And he tells Hagar, name the child Ishmael, for I have listened to your affliction. God hears. God hears us. And he comes to us with a word of comfort. And he comes to Hagar with a word of comfort. Now this pronouncement that God makes over the child Ishmael, many times people look at and see it as a curse. Doesn't sound very pleasant to us. But I want us to look at this a different way. God says, I'm going to make him a great nation. Okay? I'm going to give him offspring that can't be numbered for multitude. Later, we're going to find out that he's going to be the father of 12 princes and, and that he's going to, he's going to be great. And, and, and that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a remarkable thing for God to say. And, and God's words to Hagar actually get Hagar, give her the courage to go back into what was an incredibly difficult, abusive, undesirable situation. And God's going to provide for her. He's going to protect her. And so there's something in these words that we have to understand because they can't all be bad. God says, he will be a wild donkey of a man. That doesn't sound nice. (laughs) But there are some funny uh, analogies, illustrations used in scripture that we just don't understand. Like if you've ever read Song of Songs, And you hear him praise the beloved because her teeth are like a flock of sheep. Greatest pickup line ever. So what's going on here? What's a, what's wild donkey of a man? The wild donkey in the ancient near East was impossible to domesticate. It was free. God's telling a slave Your son will never be put in chains. Your son will be free. No one will be able to control him. No one will be able to master him. They will try everyone's hand against him and his hand against everyone. They will try, but he will fight back. He will be nobody's slave. And even though he will dwell over and against his brothers, there's this tension there that we can interpret through the lens of history. He will, he will dwell over and against his, his brothers throughout the story. Though Ishmael was outside of the promise, outside of the promised family, the promise would be through Isaac, the son that God would give Sarai, even though he would be outside of the promise, yet he would glean from the promise. He would be right on their borders. Gleaning from God's goodness to his brothers. See what Hagar is experiencing here in in God's seeing her, hearing her affliction, protecting her and providing for her is what the psalmist writes about God in Psalm 139. 
If you want to read along, you can read along. But maybe if you're in that place where you're just feeling like, really, does God care? Maybe you just need to close your eyes and listen. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake and I am still with you. Are you kidding me? This is how God sees his people. This is how God views humanity. God sees you, he hears you, he knows you, he loves you. See, much of man-made religion is an attempt to get God's attention. Hey, uh, if Pastor Mike is nearby, can you get me a water? Or somebody, I'm actually... I'm feeling, I'm feeling actually a little dizzy. Much of man-made religion is an, is an attempt to get God's attention. Oh, thank you, Ed. Appreciate it. There's a great example of it in 1 Kings 18 when there's a showdown between Elijah and the, the false prophets of Baal and uh, they make these altars and they put the sacrifice on the altar and they say, whichever God calls down fire from heaven and consumes the sacrifice, him, him is God. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. I got one. And so they make this altar and the prophets of Baal are just like, they're praying and they're getting louder and they're getting louder and they're getting louder. They start cutting themselves, trying to get God's attention, trying to, trying to get Baal's attention that he would consume the sacrifice. 
And Elijah's mocking him. He goes, uh, <laughs> I think I should be okay, but I appreciate it. Yeah. Probably just a little dehydrated. Elijah starts mocking him and goes, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he can't hear you because he's relieving himself. And then they finally give up and, and Elijah just prays and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. See, much of the religion that, that we make as humans is this attempt to get God's attention. And even Jesus says, when you pray, don't, don't heap up empty phrases like the hypocrites. For God already knows what you need. They think they'll be heard for their many words. But you, when you pray, know that God hears you. He's attentive to you. You don't need to get God's attention. We don't need to try to get God's attention. We don't need to try to make ourselves valuable to God. Our value comes from the fact that he's already mindful of us. You don't need to make yourself valuable so that God will pay attention to you. You are valuable because God pays attention to you. You are worth his time. You're worth his awareness. You're worth his thoughts. The psalmist says, your, your thoughts are too, va- too numerous for me. The, your thoughts toward me, they're, they're, there's a multitude, more than the sand on the seashore. God's thinking about you. Zephaniah says that God sings over his people with loud singing. God sings over you. We don't need to get God's attention. The ultimate proof of your significance to God, not because of anything that you've done, but because he made you and he loves you. You're significant because he loves you. He doesn't love you because you're significant. It's the other way around. The greatest evidence of that is that God gave us his son. See, God would care for Hagar by providing her a son. She has an heir. He will take care of her. God will eventually take care of Sarai in providing her a son, an heir. God takes care of us by providing for us his son, Jesus. He sent his son to to look for us. I love that the angel of the Lord found Hagar. Not that God didn't know where she was, but it still indicates that God is the one that goes looking. When you feel isolated and alone, when you feel like you're trying to find God wrong, God is finding you. God is looking for you. God is coming to you in your solitude, you in your isolation, you in your brokenness, in your grief. God is coming to you. He finds you where you are as he found Hagar. And so Jesus is this picture of God incarnate leaving heaven and coming to earth to seek and save the lost, to come and look for us because he loves us. 
It's because he loves us that he gave his only son. John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he did not believe in the name of the only son of God. See, there is not condemnation for the world in God's word. There is comfort in God's word for the world because he came to find, he came in search, he came to save you. He gave us his son. And Jesus didn't live a significant life by worldly standards. He grew up in an insignificant place, Nazareth. He did an insignificant job in that time. He wasn't an aristocrat or anyone powerful. He was a carpenter. He didn't live a very significant, privileged life. He died a slave's death without having been married or producing children. He had no heir. On paper in the ancient world, his His actual life outside of his ministry really amounted to nothing. But because of who he was and because of the things that he was doing, this insignificant carpenter from Nazareth shows up on the scenes and the most powerful religious elite start questioning their own significance. They hated Jesus because they saw their power dwindling. Jesus showed up on scene and they were like, Um, we got to do something because they're all going to him. What do we do? And he causes them to question their own significance. Jesus' significance was not in what the world could see, but it's what only can be seen through the eyes of faith. The fact that this seemingly insignificant man was God. God in the flesh, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. And even though he was the most important thing in all of the universe, Jesus spent his time with the most insignificant people in his culture. With the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the sick, the infirm, the lame, the blind, the deaf. Jesus spent all of his time with people who had no worldly significance. He saw them. He went to them. He found them because he loved them. And he gave them. And all who would believe the greatest significance imaginable. John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, speaking of Jesus, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. To all who believed, He gave them the right to be called children of God, son of God, daughter of God, child of God. Through faith in Jesus, he has declared you his family, his beloved son, his beloved 
daughter. You don't need to convince a parent that their child is significant. For whatever they do, they're significant because they're theirs. Your significance is in the fact that you belong to God, though you deserve it not. Though I don't deserve it, by God's grace in Christ, he says, you're mine. I see you. I hear your affliction. I know you. I love you. You're mine. Listen, we all want to make our lives count. And we can strive to to be our own significance like Sarai, or we can just throw a pity party and, and, you know, isolate ourselves and feel like we're insignificant like Hagar. But because of Jesus, today you know that none of that is true. You don't have to make yourself anything. And you don't have to isolate yourself because you feel like you're undeserving. God loves you. He sees you. He knows you. He desires you. He came looking for you. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the love of Jesus. It is not a coincidence that you are in this place at this time on this day. This is evidence of God's pursuit of you. Maybe you're here and you, you are a believer. You know Jesus. But you're at a season in your life where you feel like, man, God's so far away. Today, he pursues you. He looks for you. He has come to find you. He is drawing you to himself. Do not leave this place without being confident, knowing that you belong to God. That you are his. And that he loves you. You are a son. You are a daughter. So let's go to our father in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we believe, we believe your word. We believe that though we are undeserving, Lord, you have, by your grace, sought to show us your love and your, and your glory, Lord, your value. You are, you are the greatest treasure we could imagine. God, sometimes I feel like I'm, uh, I've, got this, I've got this treasure that's just like buried in the basement of, of a museum when it needs to be front and center. God, I pray that Christ in us would be front and center. In our own minds and in our hearts and in the way that people look at our lives, that they would look at us and they, they would see Jesus. They would see something far more beautiful than anything we could ever do or accomplish for ourselves. That they would look at us and see Jesus. But Lord, that's not going to happen if we, don't, if we don't look to Jesus and see how beautiful he is. And so God, I pray right now that as we worship, Lord, we would not only talk about how great you are, but that we would actually experience by the power of the Spirit how beautiful and how wonderful you are. Jesus, come find us in this place. Reveal your glory to us. Show us your face. 
be with us in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.